Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Hector Garcia. During this special edition podcast, we will discuss the Michael Brown incident that occurred on August 9th, 2014, that ultimately led the U.S. Department of Justice to come into an agreement with the city of Ferguson to bring about constitutional and effective policing in that community. Our special guest today is Chief Delrish Moss, who was appointed as the Ferguson, Missouri police chief after a nationwide search and who was entrusted to lead the police reform efforts in Ferguson. Thank you for being here with us today, Chief Moss. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. In this special edition podcast, again, we are also privileged to have with us Maria Waters, an attorney, legal subject matter expert and SNHU graduate criminal justice program adjunct professor. Esquire Waters, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So as we know, on August 9th, 2014, Michael Brown and a friend were walking in the middle of Canfield Drive, a two-lane street in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, when a police officer drove by and told them to use the sidewalk. After words were exchanged, the white officer confronted the 18-year-old Brown, who was black. The situation escalated with the officer and Brown scuffling. The officer shot and killed Brown, who was unarmed. As a result, numerous protests happened, and ultimately it led to the Ferguson police chief resigning. On November 14th of 2014, St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCulloch announces that the grand jury has decided not to indict the officer who shot Michael Brown. Protests were passionate but peaceful during that day. However, they turned violent later and they say a dozen buildings and multiple police cars were burned. Officers were hit by rocks and batteries and reports of gunfire were found in the area. On March 12th of 2015, two St. Louis area police officers were shot in front of the Ferguson Police Department during a demonstration by protesters. So obviously, we have a very volatile situation in this community. And former Miami police officer Delrish Moss was appointed after the nationwide search to head that department and reform it. So, Chief... It's our pleasure to have you here, that you can provide the insights as they actually occurred, and it's you leading the helm to take care of these issues in Ferguson, and hopefully we can get those insights. So let us begin with our uh, background about you, uh, Chief Moss. How did you end up from Miami in Ferguson, Missouri, post-Michael Brown? How did this career trajectory happen? Please enlighten us. 
Well, I did 32 years with the city of Miami Police Department, and I was actually slated to retire later that year. Uh, when the Ferguson incident occurred, I, like most people around the nation, watched it and just watched things unfold, the, the way the police chief handled things, the way the city handled things, and so forth. Um, but it, Ferguson was very similar to Miami in that Miami is actually the only major city that had three major riots in one decade. And I lived in the area where riots occurred uh, for the first two. And then I was a young police officer on the front lines when the second one occurred, when the third one occurred. And so Ferguson reminded me in large part of Miami 30 some odd years prior to, to uh, uh, the ending of my career in Miami. I decided to toss my name in the hat. Uh, there were 54 of us. And uh, after a really grueling uh, process, I ended up being selected to go to the Ferguson Police Department. Uh, I had had a pretty storied career in working in police community relations. And because of that, I thought that my resume uh, spoke to what Ferguson needed, prescriptive of, of, of the ills that occurred there. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. So let me ask you then our first question. Based on the incident we just discussed and, and your background training and knowledge in those particular areas, how did you motivate your employees to create an ethical and transparent police department after you took over the helm? Motivating is actually a, a rather strong word in that uh, when I got to the Ferguson Police Department, you had police officers that had gone countless reoccurrences of unrest. They had gone through uh, a number of things, even uh, cyber attacks on their persons. I mean, one of the things that people don't talk about is how some of those police officers who were working the front lines ended up buying boats and jet skis and all these other things that they never purchased. Uh, so there was a cyber war going on against them as well. So a lot of police officers were either leaving the police department or uh, had left the police department by the time I got there. So that actually made the job a little easy for me in that I was able to hire in new police officers with a with really a focus on change and the things that were needed. I think that if you come into a, a city after something like that, you really have to be motivated to want to be there. And a lot of people that we hired uh, actually came from the community itself. Excellent. So that that is a great strategy. Uh, Esquire Waters, I believe you have the second question for Chief Moss. Yes, Chief Moss. What were your strategies in addressing community concerns and fostering trust between the community and the department? Well, I think the biggest strategy was to actually get the community involved. I think one of the first things that sort of helped them to understand that we were really serious about making changes was when I arrived in Ferguson, I promised to knock on every single door in that city. And we went about knocking on doors. Now, Ferguson heat is unlike any heat you've ever experienced. but we knocked on every door. Uh, I did that campaign the first time and the second time I went to my command staff and I said, I'm going to go back and knock on these doors again. This time you're going to go with me. And if I have to introduce you to someone, we're going to have a problem. That meant that they needed to get out and, and start doing the same thing. Another thing that we did was we created a, a, a neighborhood uh, policing steering committee, which was an invitation to citizens to actually come in and help us as we fashion policy as we fashioned the direction for the department, we got community involvement, which was really, really critical. And you had a community that was right for that type of involvement. So it wasn't hard to get them. Now, the issue there was 
that while we talk about the divide between Ferguson and its police department, the bigger divide between the races in Ferguson, the classes in Ferguson, and even the age groups in Ferguson. So bringing those people in was really an opportunity for people who had never had an opportunity to meet each other, who were neighbors, living in the same place, shopping in the same areas, to actually meet and start to fashion their differences uh, as they help the police department fashion its differences. You know, we get police officers primarily from the community. So the prejudices and the biases and everything that come from the community actually come into the agency. The difference between us and the citizens, though, is we have training uh, to try to help us navigate those things. And so that process of bringing the community in and having them help us shape the future of the department really also helped shape some of what was happening in the community by and large. So with the issues that you indicated, um, what was the community's reactions to your efforts? Well, there were those who were skeptical. And there were those who were very welcoming of the efforts. I mean, I'll never forget, I went to one door. And at that time, the now mayor of Ferguson, Ella Jones, who was a counselor at the time, uh, was going to that door with me. And there was a 90-some-odd-year-old Black man who burst into tears when I knocked on the door. And he said, I've waited for you my entire life. That was one of those moments that showed me the enormity what changes needed to be made and how important my role was there. I think that community really figured out its change. It figured out the course that it wanted to take. It just took me to help them introduce uh, themselves to each other to, to, to fashion that and to push that in the right direction. Thank you very much, Chief Moss, for your insightful response. I'll turn it back over to Dean Garcia, Dean Garcia, for the next question. Those obstacles are present everywhere, but they can be magnified in some places. Um, now, when the Department of Justice came to the agreement with the city of Ferguson, they listed a whole cadre of areas that needed to be addressed. And let me refresh your memory of what those were. And because I'm going to ask you a question about these. They said the areas that need that were are to be covered in this agreement between DOJ and the city of Ferguson uh, include community policing and engagement, bias-free police, stop searches and arrests, the First Amendment rights, use of force, officer supervision, accountability, civilian oversight, which you mentioned earlier, officer assistance and support, both physical and mental health support, recruitment, you've touched on, mental health crisis intervention, uh, obviously, data collection and transparency and reporting in that and school resource officers. So you were given this list of this agreement. So it seems overwhelming. How do you make heads or tails of all of these mandates? Because here are 14 or 15 huge mandates. Most police chiefs maybe have to deal with one or two, three. So how did you condense all of this and how did you prioritize it and move forward to complete the provisios of this agreement with the DOJ? Well, I think one of the issues was the challenge of rebuilding the police department, because like I said, a lot of people left uh, the agency. And so you had to recruit and recruiting for a place like Ferguson was not as easy as recruiting for other cities, although it's difficult for police departments across the nation uh, right now. And so one of the biggest obstacles was rebuilding. 
uh, in terms of the numbers and bringing in not just the numbers, but the right people. I remember in, the, in Miami in the 1980s, when we washed uh, to hire a bunch of people. We had some really bad consequences as a result of that. And so I was very cognizant of that going into Ferguson. Another issue was that the, polit the politics in Ferguson were still very, very divided. And there, half of them had an interest in change and half of them still had an interest in holding things uh, the way they were because they thought that these interlopers had come in and created this narrative that they just didn't believe was true uh, in terms of a community not feeling uh, that the police department was responsive to them, that the government itself was, was responsive to their needs. And so that was the political climate was, was, was a challenge. And it took convincing them as much as it took convincing the community and the police department uh, to move forward. And the other thing was Ferguson was financially in dire straits. And so as a result of that, uh, there were challenges even there in terms of being able to bring the salaries up to where they were competitive so that you could recruit uh, the right people. But one of the things I said to them is if you want Burger King employees, you pay Burger King wages. Police officers need to be compensated because if they're not compensated well, they're liable to fall to all the temptation. And so that was another uh, challenge. Um, but all these things were, while they were Ferguson, these things really across the nation and the things that we really need to do. And then, of course, there was the whole movement to defund the police. And as you know, that Ferguson was really the catalyst for the national name for Black Lives Matter. And in my conversations with them, often I talked about defunding the police actually does not serve the purpose that you think that it served actually has the opposite effect because the last in are the first out. And if you want younger, educated, more community savvy, uh, more community involved police officers, those are the very people who are going to be gotten rid of when you bring them in, when you start to defund because salaries is the lion's share of a police department. I see. And, and I did, did look at that. And you spoke of Miami and uh, obviously you and I work together in Miami and we remember the, the McDuffie riots and, a lot of this is even the genesis of those riots is similar to this case. It's, it's, it's almost identical, almost. So these types of things, I could see why you were selected as, as the chief there and how the circuitous nature of actually getting these consent decree uh, provisions into effect and actually having them go in place can be very difficult because you're bringing together all these large groups that never really communicated. They had their, their notions about what each group did, young, the old, white, black, uh, minorities. But how did you account for the funding? Because that, that is a huge obstacle because doing this is not an inexpensive item. This, this, there are dollars that need to be spent here. How does the Department of Justice issue these consent decrees and expect a city that by your own words you said was in financial dire straits, how do they expect them to implement this? This is something that we need to be able to, to comprehend in our minds. If you want us to do all this, but we don't have the funds, how do we do it? How did you do it? Well, I think working in Miami spoiled me uh, to a large degree because all of those things mentioned in that consent decree when you really strip them back and think about it, it's really constitutional community-involved policing. That's all it is. And while it was brought into Ferguson as a consent decree, as an agreement with the Department of Justice, it really wasn't something new 
uh, to policing. You know, one of the things that we did in Miami was a concept called the walking one stop. We take all manner of services into a neighborhood that's distressed from dentistry to jobs to all these other things. You bring it into the neighborhood and you go door to door. Well, my door to door concept came right out of that. Um, what that consent decree called for were things that we have been doing in Miami since the riots in the 80s, since the unrest uh, in the 80s that really came out of the MAP Commission and, and some of those agreements. And so uh, these were things that I knew to be uh, part and parcel to what you do in policing. It was new to Ferguson, but it wasn't new to me. So while the consent decree seemed daunting, the biggest challenge in the consent decree was really having to go through the process of making things happen. Because when I fashioned the policy, if the policy was covered in that consent decree, I had to fashion the policy. I had to take it to a, an independent monitor. Then we had to work on that policy some more. Then I had to take it to the Department of Justice uh, and we had to work on the pol policy some more. And then I had to take it to the community. And then we worked on the policy and back to the circle. So it wasn't a, the biggest challenge in the consent decree was not only the financial issues that needed to occur, but it was the slow, pro it was really a slow process. And so if we're doing these things on the front end, a consent decree, it doesn't take a consent decree to make us come in and do it on the back end. It actually can move a lot quicker. Okay. So that's good because they, they realized what was, was going on. So just for us, and if, if you know, how is the department doing today? How have they uh, progressed? How has the community relations been going um, to the best of your recollection and knowledge? Well, consent decrees are expensive uh, because of all of the external uh, forces that have to go into making uh, things occur. So my suggestion to most cities is start doing this stuff on the front and read these consent decrees that are on the BJA website or on the Department of Justice website. And, and if you're not doing some of those things, let's already start looking at it. Because if you look across the country, consent decrees are all very, very similar. There's a playbook uh, for this. But you got to give credit to the people of Ferguson. Uh, when I wanted to give police officers a raise, they came up with uh, they came up with a tax increase that paid police officers uh, more money when we needed to do certain things in the consent decree. The, the city, again, was ready to chip in because one of the things they didn't want, while they didn't really want change, they also didn't want a repeat of what had occurred there. If we talk about the first days of the unrest, what, what people don't realize is from 2014 all the way to 2016 and beyond, there, were anniversary un there was anniversary unrest almost constantly. And so we talk about the first few days of, of, of unrest, but there were over a hundred days of actual unrest in that city, which is probably the longest it's, it's ever occurred. And so that uh, created a place where when we went to them for propositions to ask for more money, the community was willing to pony up. Great, excellent insights. And, and we thank you for that. Uh, Esquire Waters, do you have another question for Chief Moss? I do. Chief Moss, what are three to four pieces of practical advice which you would give someone who would encounter these similar situations that you encountered in Ferguson? So the current chief there now is, is Troy Doyle, who Troy and I have an interesting history. He worked for St. Louis County when I was at the Ferguson chief, and we actually became friends. And Troy and I would often talk about what was happening in Ferguson and how county could assist me. And so I, I think he was a perfect selection uh, to be chief. Uh, when I stepped down, I recommended Frank McCall, uh, who actually competed with me for the job. 
chief in nearby Berkeley. He competed with me for the job and then ended up uh, becoming my assistant chief because I went to him and I said, you know what? I met you. I like what you bring. You have this regional knowledge that I lack and I need you by my side. We became fast friends. He was my initial recognition, uh, my initial uh, recommendation like that. Ferguson didn't go on that route. They met route at first. Uh, they went with another person. That lasted for a little bit, and then they went back to Frank McCall. Uh, and so because of Frank, because of Troy, a lot of things are still occurring in Ferguson. They're still working toward uh, completing that consent decree, and they're still working in a positive direction. Do you feel that your prior history as a POI was very beneficial in your communication strategies with the community? Look, I think, I think the first piece of advice is always know your why and move in that direction. I knew what the mission was in Ferguson. I knew what we hoped to achieve in Ferguson. And no matter how many naysayers there were, we moved in that direction. Now, part of that challenge, of course, was convincing them uh, to come along. But success, uh, success will bring you friends. And so that was the first thing. Know your why and stay on purpose. The second thing is, is work hard to, to, to relate to people. As you communicate with people, you start to convince them that they also need in your direction. Or you may find an altered course that you never even thought of because of that. So communication is, is, is critical, not just in policing. But I think in every facet of life, we, we don't communicate enough. We talk at each other rather than talking with each other. And I think that will always be a bad, a, a bad recipe. So communication is a second, uh, second thing. But I think from a police standpoint, understanding that you serve at the pleasure of the people, and your mission is service, even be before protection, I think is another critical uh, thing to remember. Because as you remember that and work honestly and in the right vein, people will start to see that you're doing the right thing. Thank you very much. That was very insightful how you were able to use your prior position as PIO. And it seems like you were able to use it very well in Ferguson to pivot to help foster the relationship between the community and the police department. Um, and, I, and I really enjoyed listening to, and I think it was really insightful for our audience, how not only the community reacted to your efforts, but also how they engaged you in trying to ensure um, that you met the consent decree that you needed to from DOJ. I think that that experience, because not only was I PIO, but I was also the major over commu police community relations. And so my job was actually to go out and make sure that we worked on and built those relationships. Uh, school resource was under. Uh, 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 we had crimes against the elderly or the Kate officers who were under. We have all of these different things that really worked toward, even the police athletically, uh, we're really working toward building relationships with the community. We police at the pleasure of the people, and we do ourselves well when we remember that. People will tell you what their priorities are. People will tell you what they want. And because I was a PIO, I was not only able to make those things happen, but I was also a better equipped to communicate. Thank you very much, Chief Moss. And just one quick follow-up, because we, we talked about Miami and how you brought a lot of those lessons over there. And one that I can remember, I, I believe it was maybe even where you and I met when we were working in, in Miami, I was in the county, was the, the neighborhood officers. Um, did you utilize any of that concept? And please explain to our audience what the neighborhood officers are, because they're also connected with the school resource officers that you spoke of. And did you transfer or bring a version of that over to Ferguson? Thank you. Uh, and, you know, and I have to say that not everybody greeted me well when I got there. 
You know, I got the inward go home. I got the death threats. I got those things. Uh, but I also knew that those people who talk in shadow really are going to do that anyway. Uh, it's engaging the, the it's engaging others and then bringing more along that really helps to support you in your effort. So Miami created neighborhood resource officers or NROs. And here at Miramar, where I'm the police chief now, we have a CRO, which is sort of the same, same concept. And what they basically do is these are police officers specifically uh, committed to a particular area. And their job is to handle the challenges of that, that particular area, not just to deal with the crime, but the root causes of crime. Uh, and they work with all of the departments in the city to create that environment that is conducive to crime reduction. Uh, whether it be removing trash or cutting back uh, overgrown brush, brush or uh, those things, the neighborhood resource officers basically at the back and call the people in the community who call on them uh, regularly. Now, what I did in my in, in Ferguson was slightly different because it was a smaller agency. I implored every single officer to consider themselves an NRO or a neighborhood resource officer. And in that process, uh, they became responsible for their particular areas uh, more holistically because while the neighborhood resource officer concept is a great concept, in a smaller department, you have that danger of people thinking, well, that's their job. I wanted everyone in Ferguson to think that this was their job so that everyone was committed to the Bayou. Ferguson needed a healing from the bottom up, and that required that everyone feel a part of the school. Understood. And so that those are the concepts, you know, that reminds me a lot of the origins of, of law enforcement, of police work. It reminds me of the, the Pelian principles when the police are the community, the community are police and how those very first constables that, that patrolled out there in Great Britain were actually considered to be almost social workers. They did almost the same things that you're talking about. They made sure that the the, the properties were taken care of, that the citizens were taken care of, that they had health care, that they had adequate resources. This is the same concept. It's the concept that we started with and the concept that is the one that makes the biggest difference. So, Chief, we want to thank you so much for providing us with these insights on behind the scenes, behind the curtain look at how you tackled the, the Ferguson challenge and the lasting change that you made there and the model that you created that I'm sure has been emulated elsewhere in similar departments. So we want to thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And I hope that this brings some insight to someone because others will obviously follow as I grow older uh, and retire. Others on the sidelines should take these lessons and forward. And Esquire Waters, Thank you so much for joining us, bringing the faculty perspective and your legal expertise into this discussion. We appreciate your appearance here today. Thank you very much, Dean Garcia. This podcast will be very, very insightful for our audience. Chief Moss, uh, first cannot express the illuminating insight that you provided for a pivotal moment in our country. And thank you for sharing your insightful advice and wisdom with our audience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And so this concludes this episode of Agents of Change. I have been your host for this episode, Dr. Hector Garcia. Thank you for watching and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. 
rate and review us and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.